There was a thing I was doing on uh, Instagram when I started the Instagram account running. Somebody said to me the other day, um, met them doing an Airbnb experience. And they're like, oh, can we hook up with you on social media? I was like, no, <laughs> there's no social media for me. But when I used to do it, um, I started putting like footnotes, like uh, like you would like a sticky, one of those yellow sticky notes on a fridge for things that were related to psychology, especially as you apply it to humans. Wowee, what a novel concept that a psychology should be applied to humans. It's been on my mind a lot recently, like academic psychology. I wonder if people really knew how little of the academic psychology world was concerned with making humans happy and better. You'd be probably quite disappointed. I think when I'm talking to people, I'm getting the sense there's a big disparity between what most people think the world of academic psychology is and what it really is. I can prove it to you. Go on Google Scholar, which is uh, free to use. I've not run the experiment, but I can say with some confidence, if you look at the last 30 papers published, there'll be very little um, in terms of sort of saying that we came up with this new method for helping depressed people be less depressed or anxious people be less anxious. You ain't, you ain't going to find that. That ain't going to be there. <laughs> uh, so... Here's a footnote for you, and it is that the word infantile, when it's used in the context of, it's usually, it would be like a psychotherapist uh, or a psychoanalyst would say the word infantile, which is another thing about academic psychology. It's not massively concerned with psychotherapy and, and psychoanalysis. These are, these are, I wouldn't say they're fringe subjects. I'd just say that if you were to slice, if you were to make a pie of academic psychology, I don't know how big a slice of it would be psychotherapy and, and psychoanalysis, but it wouldn't be a big one. It really wouldn't. Um, so when the term infantile is used, I don't want people to get the sense that that means um, weak or immature or not stable. Um, in fact, the opposite is true. It's, in, it's implicit in the way infantile is used that actually you're going to face a problem like if a client has an infantile defense you would say oh dear um this this could be this could be troublesome if it was formed before the age of five or six not that it will be weak but that it will be strong so when we talk about infantile defenses i don't want you to get the impression we're talking about weak weak defenses or uh, meaningless defenses You've probably heard the uh, trope, the um, uh, stereotype uh, of, oh, this is a case of deep-seated childhood trauma. Well, if something is like really deep and it was formed in, child in, in early childhood, it's a problem. It's in there. It's all the way in there. It's moving from being like a... A software issue into into more like a hardware issue. It's 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 troublesome. Why is this? Because when an infant develops a defense, it's boundaryless. There's no ego boundaries there. Um, if an infant rages, so if if an infantile defense a as a traumatic response is say rage, the adult then has the boundaryless, meaning no ego boundary formation, uh, rage of an infant. You ever see a kid, three or four, you know they run around and they wobble their heads and they shout as they run because it feels good, like the vibration coming through their feet 
jostles them, so they go, uh, 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 as they run. They're like these little savages. They shout and run and enjoy the sound in their own ears of their own yell. And uh, then they find the sharpest thing in the room and then sprint past it with like their noses, their eyebrows, just like just the closest thing possible to it. Every once in a while, uh, you'll see a, a kid will run into a chair or a tabletop and bang their head. And if you listen to the um, pitch of the sound that they make in, in their distress, it is um, they're sad. They're shocked, they're in pain, but sometimes, not always, sometimes they're enraged, they're furious that the the tabletop had the fucking temerity to reach out and strike them in the head whilst they were making their progress through the world and enjoying the sound of, as they they run around. They're furious that this has, has occurred to them. There's a real outrage there, and it's boundaryless because... They can't think, well, you know, I was I was running a little close to the inanimate object and I really wasn't paying attention. Maybe I should pay more attention. You know, they, they can't formulate that. There's no... When we talk about ego boundaries, don't think of it as like a weird, mystical, off in the day. It just means um, sometimes an ego boundary is your capacity to cognitively sort difference between what you did and what somebody else did or how you feel and what you thought between a thought and a feeling these are these are part of having having ego boundaries so an infantile defense can be this boundaryless extremely thick set incredibly stubborn response that cannot be reached by reason and of course this is where anybody who does talking therapy from the full range uh, like you know uh, the shallow end of the swimming pool where life coaches are and then you get the full range of it like counselling, psychotherapy, psychiatry and all the different schools and depending on how far into the unconscious they want to go or how much they work with archetypes or whatever else you're dealing with something that can't be reached by talking to the client um, it's a very blunt tool and this is another thing that concerns me when I'm reading comments by people and I'm hearing people talk about the subject. Therapy is not magic. Think about it. Like, forget forget what you know, because most of the people watching this will be, you know, above average educated about what the therapeutic process involves. Forget that. Think of it like as if you didn't know the subject at all. You have usually two adults in a room one person is paying the other for their time and their attention and they are both consenting to what is essentially a conversation and there is really only so much i mean i'm a big fan of it and i'm a big fan of what you can do through talking and what you can do by uh, by opening up and what you can do by having that conversation but you really are just talking there's just two adults in a room having a chat and so the scope of what can be done um, is limited, um, especially when you hit a lack of consent. So why is this? Why is an infantile defense something that's going to make somebody who does talking therapy go? <laughs> because even if the client is consenting and wants to get better, if I've hit an infantile defense, 
that will supersede the adults. Uh, so you have the client and you could say, let's use the, let's use the Freudian model. You have their ego. That's the ego has uh, decided to take an action. There was a superego injunction. Life isn't working. Something must be done. This is not good enough. The ego goes, oh, okay, I'll, I guess I'll take an adult reasonable action and go and get therapy. And then you're going to come up against the child, the id, who's just going to go, no, 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 no. And there's nothing. You go, come on, let's... We should, because if you don't, your marriage is going to break down. She's going to leave you this time. You, no, 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 no. It's like you only have to change one thing. And if you let go of this one thing that you do, everything else will be fine. Doesn't that sound nice? No, 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 no. <laughs> so you get this, like, it's, and it's, it's, I've not seen that move much in my experience. I've not seen much of that go away. The thing that led me to to, to this is um, thinking about a situation from years ago. Actually, it's not it's not something I've come up against recently, but the power of denial, the power of denial, and it's an infantile response to trauma, to pain, to danger. To go, no, this isn't happening. When we talk about the codependent, the uh, the person with CPTSD, the person. Um, who, who, is, uh, who is struggling. Frequently, we notice that there is this tendency towards neurotic levels of naivety. Sam Vaknin has mentioned the malignant optimism. Um, you know, there is, and I've spoken about uh, neurotic levels of conscientiousness and an, a, a, a non-worldliness, you know, including myself in this, like on some subjects, I'll be worldly and I'll be wise and sophisticated and mature and then on some subjects I am just goo goo gaga and it's it's frequently it's around intimacy I'm like why am I I make such good decisions here and here I'm really proud of that and I go over there and I'm like who made this decision and where was the me that is me when I made that decision where there was this where was I and then you have to start, this is another subject for another video, you have to start looking at, well, there's clearly more than one I. There clearly is. There's clearly more than one self. And as I mentioned in the, the CPTSR Thrivers video of the sad baby, it seems to be the case that in certain emotional flashbacks, we're actually constructing or we're flashing back into a split or a part or a persona or a superstate that's different. And maybe we could call another one like, um, what, what would you, what, uh, I can't think of, oh fuck, I've taught myself into a corner now. Like if you were infinitely naive and you were always just, is there a character? There must be a character from fiction who's always, who's perpetually naive, who's perpetually just otherworldly and always assumes uh, the best about other people, even when everything indicates that that's not what they should be doing. Um, whatever we decide to call that, it's that. Mr. Naive, Mrs. Naive, Mrs. Non-Worldly. And I think the root of that is, I know I sound like a stock record, childhood trauma. It's what happened in the formative years. We saw something that was unacceptable. We saw something that we couldn't cope with. We saw something that probably threatened our whole sense of self and our, self, our sense of existence like for example, mommy and daddy don't love me or the world is a dangerous place or um, 
you know, it could be something really heavy that's happened that, that makes the child just go, no, 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 <laughs> not this, not this. A denial, a, uh, I think the, the, the more flowery psych, uh, psychoanalytic uh, term for that, I think is disavowal. So you just go, no, not that. I, ref I refuse, I accept everything, but not that. That then becomes an infantile defense. We have a tendency towards falling back to denial as a means of operating in the world. That's not a great, that might have been great when you were a kid and you just wanted to stay alive and not, um, and not, and not die um, of uh, a lack of love or a lack of being seen or, or of only being seen by, uh, by somebody who was, who was evil or unpleasant. But in adulthood, it's lethal. It's lethal because you're always going to deny the evidence that's put in front of your eyes. And this defense is strong, but maladaptive. The infantile defense is strong, but not good for you and not good for the people around you. It's an adaption to stress, but it's a bad adaption. It's a costly adaption. It's a, uh, an inefficient adaption that will cost a lot if you're perpetually naive. So when we say infantile, it's not weak. We don't mean weak. The opposite. It can be incredibly strong with a blind, um, another slightly flowery term from, from the psychoanalytic literature would be, would be libido and libidinous energy. Um, libido often thought of as being like people's sex drive. And if you have a high libido, okay, yes, but it's also libidinous energy is the drive to life. Imagine, put yourself in the mind of a three-year-old and the, your blind, unboundaried, unqualified, you never question yourself. You never question, oh, that sounds like certain personality disorders we won't mention. You never question yourself. You are unquestionable. It doesn't exist as a possibility for me as a three-year-old to say, oh, you know, I think on this occasion, I think this is me. I really don't feel like I ate enough kale this week and I'm a little cranky. I haven't done my meditation <laughs> and it's me. I'm off. It's me that's out. You can't. It doesn't exist. It can't. But when the, uh, um, the, the formation is formed at that age, that carries through into adulthood and you just go, no, that's not me. So infantile does not mean childlike and it, it means, it, obviously it means childlike. It doesn't mean weak. It means it's a blind, driven by libidinous force, drive that was rooted in survival and was boundaryless. So when you know, so how does this manifest in adulthood? Here's something we can all relate to. You ever come across somebody who's a little stubborn? Just a little bit stubborn? but stubborn in a way that goes beyond anything you have ever seen in any human being before, beyond the most mule-headed, determined, teeth-gritted, pitbull-like determination to get their own way, to the point where you're Googling at two o'clock in the morning, is my wife autistic? Like, how would I know if my wife was on the spectrum? How would I know if my boyfriend is... Like, because you don't know... You start reaching for explanations. You start, you go online and you're looking or you ask people, you're looking for some kind of explanations. You're like, this is 
a stubbornness to have a thing be a certain way, even when this person who's intelligent in every other way must know that it's going to cost them. So this is where the disavowal comes back in. The denial, the fetishist split, the Freudian uh, concept of the fetishist split. They know that holding on to this object is going to hurt them. The ego knows, and probably the superego is sending an injunction about it, either do it or don't do it, I don't know. The ego knows, but there are parts of them in the infantile uh, um, place where raw, unfiltered emotion and uh, reaction formations are coming from that supersede that. So you can intellectually know, but still, they won't let go of it. And then you'll look for explanations. Like you'll be like, why would they do this? It's actually, you're caught up in their infantile defenses. And if you're ever asking the question, why do they only seem to do this to me and not to anybody else? It is intimacy that is the trigger. You're experiencing it and they can have friends, they can work, they can have their normal relationships everywhere else, but it's just you that gets it because of the intimacy. So the, and this is a particularly cruel uh, thing, but you could almost say the more they love you and the more vulnerability there is in your, in your partner, let's assume there is no personality disorder there, there's just an infantile defense there, the more they love you, the more vulnerability there is there, the more boundarylessness there needs to be because there's no love without intimacy and there's no intimacy without vulnerability. The shields must come down and there will always be a degree of merging. There'll always be a degree of, of codependency. We say, oh, you're a codependent. And I'm like, show me the relationship that's not codependent. I mean, you know, but, but we know, you know, let's not be pedantic. Let's not be petty. We know, we know what it means. We know what it means. The extent to which that happens is the extent to which the infantile defenses can be caused and their behavior then will be very, perhaps it's only bad with you, or maybe it's only bad with you and with their family members, or maybe it's only bad with you, or maybe it's not bad with you. Maybe it's with their employers. They're fine with you. They're fine with everybody, but they act like such a dick with their employers. So there's something about the employer-employee paradigm that triggers uh, an emotional flashback into, I think what would, I'll probably end up calling like, an abused archetype. So I would hold inside of myself an abused archetype as in how I respond, a personality that I manifest as a result of stacked emotional flashbacks um, and uh, that will be on the, the passive, the yin, the receiving uh, end. And then I will manifest abuser archetypes that I will project outwards based on stacked emotional flashbacks. So... I may be Mr. Naive, and then I may say it's in a, um, an intimate relationship context. I may then start to project out and do projective identification of, uh, I really should have thought some names before I started, before I started filming, like um, Mrs. Vindictive. Sorry, my names aren't good today. So I'm Mr. Naive as an abused or receiver archetype as, as a result of emotional flashbacks. And I'm now projecting out an externalized abuser archetype, Mrs. Vindictive, where, you know, that sh she's not, that's not happening. I'm seeing it because of my own issues, but I'm projecting it out. And I may even be even more um, 
pervertedly and horribly, unfortunately, provoking those responses. And I sort of go, ah, see, I fucking knew it. I knew it. That can be happening. That's part of projective identification. But it means we end up with a yin uh, receiving archetype as the abused and a yang projecting outward into the future archetype, into the external world archetype, onto other people of the... Uh, so there's abused... And then I'm projecting out abuser archetypes. And you could say, well, you were talking about infantile defenses. How the fuck are these infantile defenses? That just sounds awful. That just, that's not a defense. It's maladaptive. It's maladaptive. Why would I see myself as infinitely naive? Because I need to protect myself from reality. So I need to deny the reality that I see around me. Why would I project onto an otherwise neutral, uh, she's imperfect, she's a human being, she has problems herself, blah, blah, of course. But why am I turning her into uh, a demon? Or why am I turning him into a demon? What's going on here? Well, the defensive side of that is never again. Never again. I won't get fooled again. I won't get tricked again. Um, uh, you know, this actually can become the um, the war cry of whole cultures, of whole nations who feel themselves or have experienced being the victims of abuse. And this is called, or can be called, the N-word defense. But it's not, it doesn't, this is, gets more complicated because the, the, the N-word in that context doesn't mean NPD. It means from the uh, perspective of healthy narcissism. So you actually have an infantile narcissistic defense to trauma that is, this will never happen to me again. I'll catch them next time. I'm, I'm, I'm hypervigilant. I'm looking for the evidence. Ah, I've seen it. There you are. Caught one. Ah, caught one. Caught one. Caught one. Caught one. There he is. There she is. Seen him again. This is emotional flashbacks. These are, these are actually, they're not emotional flashbacks. They're manifestations of emotional flashbacks. The other thing that's been on my mind is the witch hunt um, phenomena. It really is a phenomena that you can see playing out um, online in multiple forums, across multiple contexts. And it doesn't just hap, hap, it doesn't just hap. That's not a thing. You can't change the word happen to hap. Uh, it doesn't just happen in our little fringe niche area of the internet world it happens all over the internet it happens in it'll happen in quantum physics it'll happen in forums where they design spoons like everywhere and it will be but these are manifestations of an emotional flashback or a stacking of emotional flashbacks that is an infantile defense to trauma and it's not weak it is strong it is stubborn and it is very, very tricky uh, to resolve. Okay, that's it. Um, if anybody has any questions, now would be a good time to ask me. If you want to ask me a question, please end it with a question mark and make it only one sentence long. Uh, what do you think of the term gifted child? Pete Walker uses it in his book and I can identify. I have to say, I can't remember. I can't remember him using the term gifted child. I'd need to know what the context was uh, for gifted child. As in, um, does it mean that the child stands out within the family unit? Um, because then I would, yeah, I would understand what that, what that would mean. 
Grace says, ah, thank you for explaining that, Richard. Light bulb moment, I suspected intimacy was triggering, allowing these projections by particular people I deal with on a daily basis. Vinnie Harris, have you written any books? Because what you discuss is fascinating. I've written a couple of short books and they're available on um, Amazon. Um, but yeah, I probably, it was, it is, it was, it is something to be done in 2019. I've noticed we're already in March. We're already in the third month of 2019. So hopefully that'll, that'll happen, yeah. How to deal with the infantile reaction, says Linda. Uh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, you got me. Um, <laughs> you got me there. I'll give you that one. Um, what? Okay, so when I coached people and when I could see an infantile reaction, what did I do? I said very clearly inside my head, I drew a boundary around it and I said, okay, here's Peter. And Peter's a cool guy and we talk and he's fine and he's all good. But when we talk about women, he goes weird, man. He says like really weird stuff and he starts showing off and he's like telling me how many women he slept with and he's this and he's that. And I'm like, God, that's really icky and uh, not charming where normally like he's a really charming dude. He gets all insecure and like he really needs to impress me with his uh, sexual prowess for women. And I go, okay, this is an infantile defense. This is not Peter. So I draw a boundary around it and I go, my, you know, because if a client starts to be annoying or weird or showing you stuff like that, you need in your own head to have your own self-management techniques. You go, okay, the value of the client is held constant, even though some of the beliefs and the behaviors will be questioned. So I go, okay, there's something that needs questioning. That's the first thing I would do. And I'd say the value of the client is held constant. So what is this? What am I seeing here? And then I would, I'm on the fly here. I'm telling you what I would do. I haven't written this out and thought about it. I think I would, so number one is how I feel about it. Number two is how I address it, which is see that right there. You're going to need some patience with that. So I'm telling me, I'm going to have to be patient with this. This is how this guy has been his whole adult life about this one issue which means it's layered with a lot of emotion. So this is gonna take some time. So I'm like, this issue, we don't rush, we don't push, you don't bully the client, you know, cause I can play drill instructor, you know, it's the Spartan life coach, you're gonna do this, you're gonna hammer this, you're gonna have discipline, that's not gonna work with an infantile defense. And if anything, it will make it stronger. It'll just put the roots of it, you know, like in a, an alien where it like clings on and you start pulling on it and it just goes, nah! it just gets, it just goes even deeper in. So I'm like, I'm not pulling on that. I'm not pulling on that. I'm not going to fight that. So one, uh, identify it. Two, the value of the client is held constant. Three, 
this is going to require patience on my part. So there's three things I need to do to me to not make it worse. And then, and then I think generally it gets a note in my head and I'm like, okay, with this client, I'm always probably going to be coming back to this. Like if this client has daddy issues or this client has mommy issues or this, that's, which it might not be. Like that thing about needing to show off to another man about women, that might not be mummy issues. That's, that's a, it could be, but that's a cheap, too fast diagnosis. You've got to find out more because it might not be about sex. It might not be about promiscuity. It might not be about his masculinity. It could be about something else altogether. So we draw no assumptions, not yet. Then I need to work on it and I need to work on it skillfully and patiently and not directly because if I touch that infantile defense it will strengthen it will go get the fuck off me it'll it's 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 a it's a muscular stubborn thing and if you pull on it if you attack it if you put cigarettes out on it it will just burrow in deeper because it's a reaction against resistance in the external world. And as the person doing the talk therapy with, I don't want to be perceived as external and um, something to fight with. I want to generate the intimacy and rapport so that I almost come through like an internal voice so that the client starts to go, Oh, this is my idea. Because sometimes you're dealing with things like, you're trying to deal with things like introjects and injunctions from the superego. It's, 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 really, it's really sticky work. It's really difficult. So you need to have this kind of like Aikido, Tai Chi principle. I'm going to blend with the intention of this and then I'm going to take it where I want it to go. I don't know what number we're on. I think we're on like five or six. Okay, so number six is then I start thinking about neuroplasticity. Or maybe we're on number seven now. Now I'm thinking about neuroplasticity and I'm like, this is a cluster of neural pathways that has been used and charged over a lifetime of emotion from childhood. I'm not going to get rid of this quickly, but I need to soften it. How do we generate neuroplasticity in an area where you have a strong infantile defense? Philosophy. Philosophy. Blend with the client's intent and be light and inquisitive and apply Socratic method. Seek more information. Don't generate defensiveness and sort of say, okay, tell me about, you know, like, how, tell me about this subject. How do, you, how do you feel about the subject? How do you think about the subject? That's really interesting, I say, coming from a place of non-judgment and curiosity with a good sense of humor knowing that this is going to take a while to redevelop and knowing that in my role I am somewhere between a big brother to a, uh, to a parent figure and that my condemnation or judgment of, of this infantile defense could be catastrophic and totally like everything after that will be ruined like I'll lose my rapport and I, I can't I trade I trade on rapport so I, if I lose that I've lost the game so 
then I'll say, okay, well, let's be, this is really interesting and let's be philosophical about this. How do you, where did you get these ideas? Where do you, how do you think about this? And have you ever found a situation where this is not true? How have you found other people have responded to this? Wow, that's really interesting. And um, have you ever known somebody who has the same beliefs as you and it's done this for them or that? So you start going all the way around it, trying to generate and mirror an attitude of curiosity towards this thing that's the infantile defense and then if if you have a fair wind and god is willing then you might slowly over a period that will be measured probably in months rather than weeks start to get the person to let go of it but they need something else. So I think we're now on step eight or step nine. It must be replaced by something that they feel is better, that they feel serves them more. You can't just pull the tooth out and leave a fucking um, gaping wound there. Like the, you've got, because that will aggravate them and they'll feel the lack of it. And even if you do good therapeutic work and it is gone if there's a lack there they'll go the tongue keeps going back to it and i'll go i don't like that i don't like that space there i want something there and they'll they'll, they'll redevelop it from scratch this has happened that's not richard's theory that's that's written about uh, in the literature and has been for over 100 years like so so people have been cured of addiction for example, like opium addiction, and then redeveloped with uh, determination and discipline and skill. The There are certain addictions that in order to get re-addicted to them, smoking. I watched a friend of mine re-addict himself to smoking consciously from scratch and went through the pain of it because it's painful to get addicted to smoking. It hurts your throat, it hurts your lungs, it hurts your nose, it hurts your eyes, it sucks. It's a sucky experience and he did it because... It wasn't a completed process. Something else needs to go there that makes you better, that makes the um, system, the human system, function more effectively in the world. You asked me a really good question. I've given you a... I would mark that answer around a 6 out of 10. I probably need a little bit more time to think about it. Um, I'm afraid I can't answer any more questions now because I'm out of time. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time and your attention. I have a meeting I must go to and I must leave. So take care. How did you quit smoking? I used Zen meditation. That's actually true. That's how I quit smoking. I quit smoking.